Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I'm really pleased that you've decided to join us today for our online class in the group learning program. Whether you're seeing this on Facebook, YouTube, Zoom, any of our other platforms like our podcast and so forth, it's a really great time to be joining to learn about the Buddhist teachings because everything that the Buddha taught in terms of this path to enlightenment is based on what we're going to be talking about today, which is the three universal truths and the four noble truths. Without a student or a practitioner understanding and practicing these, they would have no opportunity to actually progress on this path and attain enlightenment because it's during the understanding of the three universal truths and the four noble truths that a practitioner can make what we call the breakthrough to truly understanding what causes the discontent mind and how to resolve it or how to eliminate it. Because this path to enlightenment is all about eliminating discontent feelings, sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, all of these discontent feelings and others can be eliminated through learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings of Gautama Buddha as you do what we call establish right view. And here, since you're listening to this today and you're going to be participating in the class, you have the opportunity to establish right view. You have the opportunity to make the breakthrough to understanding the Four Noble Truths and thus then being able to practice them more and more in your daily life. It's the Four Noble Truths that fully help us to understand what's causing this discontent mind and how to actually eliminate it. As you learn today, it's really, really important that you don't believe anything that I say. In fact, anytime I teach at all, or any time that you learn anything related to the path to enlightenment, you should never believe it because belief isn't going to lead to liberation of the mind. It's not going to lead to enlightenment. You need to be able to learn the teachings intellectually, reflect on those teachings, and then put them into practice so that you can see the truth for yourself. You're going to need teachers and guides to help you on this path, but it's only when you learn, reflect, and practice the teachings that you see the truth for yourself, and then you acquire wisdom. And this wisdom essentially eradicates or eliminates belief because people can believe anything that they want to believe, but it might not be the truth. 
Gautama Buddha's teachings are discussed as the three universal truths, the four noble truths, and things like this because he knew they were truth. I know they're truth. Other people know they're truth. But until you know that they're truth and you can see the wisdom for yourself, then you're just maybe functioning on belief. So it's really important that as we progress in our class today, that you don't believe anything that I say. And at various times in our class, I will be pausing and turning things over to the moderators to see what questions you guys have so that you can have the opportunity to get any clarification on the teachings. Because by you doing this, where you eradicate belief and acquire wisdom, the mind can then progress on this path to becoming more and more liberated to eliminate these discontent feelings because it's a real struggle to exist in a world that we don't understand. And that's what's happening in the unenlightened mind is it's existing in a world that it doesn't understand. And Gautama Buddha's teachings, not as a religion, but as a better way of life are explaining to you the natural laws of existence. And these natural laws are things that the unenlightened mind just doesn't understand. And because it doesn't understand them, it struggles and has challenges and experiences misery and displeasure in the world because it's struggling to live in a world that it doesn't understand. But you can't believe these natural laws of existence. You need to learn them, reflect on them, and then practice to see the truth for yourself to acquire that wisdom eradicating the unknowing of true reality or we call it ignorance some people you've actually done this on many different topics in your life throughout your life and you may not realize that that's what you've done whether it's the santa claus if you grew up believing in santa claus or the tooth fairy you basically at one point had belief in these things you learned the truth you discovered that and gained wisdom. And now, no matter how many Santa Clauses you see, no matter how many Christmas carols you hear relating to Santa Claus, no matter how many presents you see under a tree around Christmas time, you know that they weren't put there by Santa Claus because you've eradicated the belief and you've got wisdom and your mind is unshakable on this topic. Well, these natural laws of existence from Gautama Buddha, as you gain more and more wisdom, your mind will become unshakable. That shaking up is the anger, the sadness, the guilt, the shame, the fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy. This is the mind being shaken up because it doesn't understand the truth. And the more that you understand the truth, your mind won't be shaken up. Maybe as a little kid, when you first found out that perhaps Santa Claus doesn't exist, your mind might have been shaken up. If you can remember back that far, you might have been disappointed or angry or frustrated because you are discovering that something you believe wasn't actually true. And this wisdom that you now have, your mind is unshakable on this topic. You've done this as well with the natural law of gravity. At one point in your life, very early in life, you didn't understand the natural law of gravity. This natural law was affecting you. You kept falling down. You kept hurting yourself. Your toys were falling down and breaking. You were knocking cups of water and juice and things like this over. And people were maybe upset with you or disappointed that you were doing this. And this is just because you lacked the wisdom of this natural law. 
you had the unknowing of true reality, or if we want to refer to it as ignorance, since some people refer to it as that, we can call it ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. You didn't understand this natural law, and thus life was a real struggle. When we were one years old, two years old, three years old, we would run, we would jump, we would fall down, we would fall off of our bicycle, we would break our toys, we would knock things over. And it was a real struggle to live in this world related to the natural law of gravity. But as we aged, we gained more and more wisdom about this natural law, where today we know if we have something special, we put it in a special place so that it doesn't fall down and break. Because we have that wisdom, we can make a better decision about that. And we can make better decisions about how we walk. And when we walk down the sidewalk, we're more attentive. We make sure that our shoes are tied because we learned that growing up, that when our shoes aren't tied, we trip and we fall. And we had to do the tripping and falling for a number of times before it finally soaked in that we've got to make sure our shoes are tied all the time. Right. So this is how the learning process happens is that we tend to fall down. We tend to hurt ourselves. We tend to get frustrated, irritated. We struggle through life and eventually we get wisdom along this path that helps us to be more enlightened or more awake to these natural laws and the truth around us. And as we do, life becomes more peaceful. It becomes more serene. It becomes more content. We experience better success and progress in our life and our various relationships and various roles in society. And nowadays we can travel anywhere we'd like on this planet because we understand the natural law of gravity, where when we were two or three or four years old, we had to stay pretty close to our caregivers. And we even had kind of a, a cordon off play area because we weren't really able to go outside that area because we would get hurt. And we had to be constrained a bit. We had to re be restrained by our parents. Well, now you've been tripping down, you've been falling, you've been struggling, you've been experiencing sadness, anger, frustration, guilt, shame, fears, boredom, loneliness. All these discontent feelings have impacted your life and it's been a real struggle. And it's not until a student learns the three universal truths in the Four Noble Truths that you start understanding and you start establishing what we call right view, where you can start seeing things in a different light. And then as you learn this, there's a whole path that the Buddha lays out for us to help us learn more and more and more about these natural laws so that we can now make better decisions through the wisdom of these teachings and we're able to now function in the world without this struggle, without this misery, without this displeasure, without this discontentedness. So the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. That's what an enlightened mind is. So I would like to thank you for joining today because I'm looking forward to helping you to make this breakthrough to understanding the Four Noble Truths and establishing right view. But all of that is based on your effort and it's all based on you not believing what I say, but instead learning, reflecting on it and practicing it. And I'll help you to see how to do that as we get going in our class today. So with all of that said, let me switch over to some visual aids to help you 
see what it is that I'm actually going to be talking about as we progress in our class today. The very first thing we're going to talk about is the three universal truths. The first of the three universal truths is called impermanence. Now remember, as I teach this, don't believe what I'm going to share with you, but learn it and then I'm going to help you reflect on it during class and then you can practice it outside of class. Because the universal truth of impermanence is essentially helping you to understand that everything is constantly changing in the world. There is no permanent fixed state. Anything that arises is going to have to cease to exist. Material objects, possessions, relationships, thoughts, ideas, states of mind. Essentially, everything in the world is constantly changing. All conditioned thoughts, thoughts that are conditioned on some external thing, they're all going to arise and they're all going to cease to exist. All of our thoughts are going to arise and then they will cease to exist. There's no steady, constant or fixed state other than enlightenment itself. Because the unenlightened mind is actually having thoughts and feelings arise based on some conditions externally. And because those thoughts and feelings are based on external conditions, they're going to arise and they're going to cease to exist. But with an enlightened mind, it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy inwardly. There's no external conditions that are creating this inner peacefulness, this inner calm, this inner serenity, this inner contentedness or this inner joy, it's not being created by external conditions. It's unconditioned peacefulness. It's unconditioned calmness, serenity, contentedness. It's unconditioned joy. So that's why it, it's permanent. It doesn't arise. So therefore it doesn't cease because it's just always there. It's not based on any particular conditions. Now that you understand basically what impermanence is, is that things are constantly changing and there isn't any constant fixed state, you don't just believe this, but instead you reflect on this. Because with the Buddhist teachings, when I share this with you, if you can find something that's permanent outside of the definition of what I've just given you, then you've disproven the Buddha and there's nothing for you to learn here. And the Buddha was basically not telling the truth. But as you reflect and you look at life, what you'll come to understand is that, yeah, you've been experiencing nothing but impermanence your whole life. Let's just go through a couple of examples to help you reflect on this. Is the body permanent? The physical body that you inhabit now has it permanently been the same from the beginning of your life until now? And will it continue to be the same? Of course, the answer is no. This physical body has been constantly changing ever since birth. Ever since you were conceived in the womb, the body has been constantly changing. That's impermanence. The relationships that you've had in your life, have you had exactly the same people in your life from the beginning all the way to the end? Or have people been coming and going in and out of your life? Because that's impermanence, right? Of course, people have been coming and going in and out of your life. What about your job or your career? Have you had exactly the same career and job your entire life? No. 
And what about your salary or your income? Has your income been going up and down? Of course, it's been going up and down throughout your life. Have you slept in the same house or the same bed your entire life? No, right? We could keep going through example after example after example to help you see that nothing is truly permanent that is based on some condition. If something arises, it's going to have to cease to exist. And this is essentially why we all have to die, right? Oftentimes we're taught that we're being punished and that's why we die. No, that's not why we die. We actually die because we were born. That's the only reason. Everyone dies for exactly the same reason. Sure, we have accidents, we have cancers, we have things like this, but we all are essentially dying for the same exact reason. The reason why we die is because we were born. That's the only reason why we die, because we're born, okay? And this is part of this universal truth of impermanence, that everything's constantly changing. This is important as we get into the Four Noble Truths. You'll understand why. These three universal truths are building blocks to help us get to the Four Noble Truths. Then we have the universal truth of discontentedness. This is the second universal truth. Sometimes in Buddhist teachings, this is referred to as suffering. But I will explain why I don't use the word suffering. But let me explain to you what discontentedness is first. As the Buddha talks about this second universal truth, he uses these three feelings to describe it. He says there's painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. This is what the mind experiences on an ongoing basis. The unenlightened mind is going to experience painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Examples of painful feelings are things like sadness, depression, anger, hatred, ill will, guilt, shame, fear, anxiety, stress. You might add some other ones in there too. This is just kind of a sample list that I put together. There's pleasant feelings like happiness, excitement, elation, right? These are very pleasant feelings. And then there's feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And for me, I put in there boredom, loneliness, kind of melancholy, shyness, kind of an uncomfortable, unsatisfied feeling. And some people say boredom and loneliness is quite painful for them. And if that's the case, that's fine. You can consider it painful. This is just kind of an example. Well, the Buddha says that there's these three feelings of painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So he's categorizing all the feelings that we experience in these three ways. Now, once again, if you can come up with a feeling that doesn't fit into one of these three, then you've disproven the Buddha, and this isn't a universal truth. He's describing it as a universal truth because it applies to all unenlightened beings, that all unenlightened beings are going to experience this discontentedness of painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And I refer to this as discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. This is like a mental state where the mind is discontent because it's experiencing anger. Ah, the mind is discontent. Or the mind feels 
guilt or shame. Ah, the mind's discontent. Or anxiety or stress. Ah, the mind's discontent. There's discontentedness in the mind. But also when the mind's happy, excited, elated. Ah, the mind's discontent. Because as you know, when you've gotten very happy, very excited, very elated, it's only a matter of time before that drops off because it's impermanent and you fall into some sadness or anger. Or you get so happy and excited that you trip and fall or twist your ankle or something like this, right? And then there's also those times where you experience neither painful nor pleasant, like boredom or loneliness or shyness, right? Like when you're on a bus, on a public bus in certain cultures, if you're in a culture where there's a bit of distance that is typically asked for and kind of expected in certain cultures. But if some stranger come and sits really, really close to you, and even like your bodies are actually touching side by side, for some people, this will produce an uncomfortable feeling in the mind. It's not really painful when that stranger sits next to you. It's not really pleasant when they sit next to you. It's neither painful nor pleasant. And that's this third feeling. And it's all called discontentedness or discontent or discontented. And the goal of these teachings and this path to enlightenment is to eliminate these discontent feelings. Now, a lot of people will say that the Buddha taught the elimination of suffering. Okay, the elimination of suffering. But I don't use that word suffering in this context because as you see, what the Buddha was talking about in terms of what needs to be eliminated from the mind is this painful feelings, these pleasant feelings, and these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Well, suffering, to me, only explains painful feelings. When I was sad, I would say, yeah, I was suffering or angry or feeling guilt or shame or fear. Yeah, I was suffering, right? But when I experienced excitement and elation, I wouldn't say I was suffering, right? That was excitement and elation. So I wouldn't say that I was suffering at that time. And also when that stranger might have come and sit next to me many years ago and I might have felt uncomfortable, I wouldn't have said that I was suffering in that moment. I would have just said, oh, it's uncomfortable, right? So if we use this word suffering that has been used in the past, then we're only going to understand about 33% of what the Buddha was talking about. That's only one third of what he was talking about. So that means we're missing 66% of what he was talking about. We're missing two thirds of his teachings, essentially. And that's a whole lot of teachings to miss. And this is why we don't see massive numbers of enlightened people walking around the planet because we're using this word suffering to explain what the Buddha referred to as painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And I would say discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. So these are the words that I would use to describe what it is the Buddha was teaching to eliminate. Now, one of the things that you might be curious about is, hold on, David, we're going to eliminate happiness, excitement, and elation as part of this path to enlightenment? How is that a good thing? Well, what the Buddha is teaching here is to eliminate how the mind longs for pleasant feelings, 
how it wants pleasant feelings, how it craves pleasant feelings based on some external condition. So a lot of us in our cultures, we've been taught that the goal in life is to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. Happy, happy, happy. Just create a happy life, a happy life. Well, what's a happy life? Well, a lot of people would say, you know, be rich or be famous or have a nice house, a nice car, have a family, have a life partner perhaps or whatever. These are all conditions. The mind, if it has a certain amount of money, it's happy. But then that wears off because it's impermanent. Or you have a certain size of a house and the mind's happy, but now it wants a bigger house, right? Or the mind gets excited because you got a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend and then it's not excited anymore because it's impermanent, because it's based on some condition, some external condition. So these feelings, these painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant, they're based on some condition. So therefore they're impermanent. They arise and then they cease to exist. Well, if the mind is chasing after pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, and elation, when it can experience those pleasant feelings based on some external condition, oftentimes what we do is we resort to some kind of substance like alcohol or drugs or some other addiction like sex or gambling or something like this or shopping, right? The mind is chasing after these pleasant feelings, this happiness, excitement, and elation, and it needs more and more and more and more of them in order for it to experience that pleasure. And this is part of the problem that we're going to talk about in the Four Noble Truths. So an enlightened mind is going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, lots of joy, but it's going to not be based on any external conditions. It's going to be inwardly joyful. It's not going to need to have a girlfriend or a boyfriend to be joyful. If there's a boyfriend or girlfriend in the picture, okay, there's joy. If there's not one, it's okay. That's fine too. An enlightened mind is going to be content in any and all situations. It's not going to be basing its internal feelings on external things. And this is why through the path to enlightenment, you can get to this permanent joy because it's unconditioned. It's not based on any external conditions. So what I suggest you do is look at these three feelings of painful, pleasant, and neither painful nor pleasant and reflect on this and see if there's any feelings that you have that you feel like don't fit into one of these categories. And when we get to our question time, you can ask that question of, hey, David, where does this fit in? I don't feel that this feeling fits into these three feelings because this practice is about interacting with your teacher and making sure that you understand and you can acquire that wisdom that we're talking about. Not about believing, but intellectually understanding, reflecting, and then practicing to see the truth for yourself. And now the third universal truth is something we call non-self. The Buddha taught that there is no permanent self. But the problem with the unenlightened mind is the unenlightened mind thinks that there is a permanent self. And the way that you know that is if I asked you, you know, Holly, point to Holly or Judith, point to Judith or Tom, you know, point to Tom. Where is Tom? 
And most people, when they're first starting to learn, would actually take their finger and they would point to the physical body or they would point here, maybe to the mind. So the problem is in the unenlightened mind that the unenlightened mind falsely identifies with the physical body or the mind as being the self. The unenlightened mind thinks that this physical body is David or that this mind is David. But in reality, all we've got here is we've got skins, we've got bones, we've got fluid, we've got tissue. David isn't in this body anywhere. There is no David. I can't point to a permanent David. I can point to a shirt, to skin, to bones, to fluid, to muscle tissue, but I can't ever get to a point where I point to one thing that we say, that is David. It's not possible because there is no permanent self, right? So the problem with the unenlightened mind is it has this self-identity or this self-image. We start looking at this label of David that was given to me at birth and we start assigning this self-image and the self-identity. And now when somebody says something displeasing or maybe they look at us in a certain way, we maybe they comment on our hair or our clothes, now the mind becomes discontent because it's holding on to this self. It's protecting this self. And it thinks that this self, this body, this mind is David. And now we walk around very protective and very fearful of this self. And this causes the mind to be discontent. That's part of what causes the mind to be discontent. And as part of this path to enlightenment, we actually work to eradicate the mind's misunderstanding that there is a self because we know through the Buddhist teachings, as you learn about non-self more and more, that there absolutely is no self. This tends to be more of an intermediate teaching that you better understand as you get underway on the path. So if you don't understand this right now, it's okay. At this point, if you understand impermanence and discontentedness, that's where you need to be. This third universal truth of non-self is something that usually six months or a year, two years down the road, we make sure we explore that and make sure you understand it more deeply. But for right now, if you're not 100% understanding what I'm talking about with non-self, it's okay. We can still talk about it and you can ask questions about it. But understand that this usually takes time for the mind to understand more fully because it, we've lived with a self or our whole life in prior lives as well. And that's why it's so hard for the mind to understand what is non-self. But if you think about this false identification of the body or the mind, this self-identity, this self-image, protecting this self is causing the mind to be discontent in certain situations. And through eradicating that and realizing non-self or dissolving the concept of a self in the mind, the mind can reside more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it's no longer trying to protect the self. And also when there's a self, we oftentimes become very selfish and we hold things very closely. So when we eradicate the self, then we don't have these selfish tendencies that produce unwholesome results for us in our life.
So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have. If you're watching this on Facebook, YouTube, or in our Zoom classroom, you can put your questions into the comment section and our moderators will see that and be able to ask the question during the class. And if you're in Zoom, you have the added feature to electronically raise your hand asking any questions or any follow-up questions directly in order to get help and understand the teachings more deeply. So with that, let me turn things over to James, Bassam, and Manal and see what questions you guys have before we actually move into the Four Noble Truths. Hey, David. I had a quick question. You mentioned that non-self can be a challenging concept to grasp. Would you say that as we deeply understand impermanence that non-self is implied in that because everything that we would consider to be ourselves is in fact impermanent and constantly in flux? Yeah, the more that you understand impermanence, the more that you walk around and see impermanence, you know, you're walking down the street, you see a crack in the sidewalk, impermanence. You're walking down the street, it's nice and bright and sunny outside, the clouds cover the sun, ah, that's impermanence, that's change. Or, you know, you're walking down the street, it's nice and quiet, it's nice and peaceful, you're looking at all the scenery, and next thing you know, someone comes by and honks the horn, that sound, right? At first it was quiet, now there's a horn honking. That's impermanence. So the more that you soak impermanence into the mind and you deeply understand that all of these things are impermanent, then the more you start to investigate and look for a self and try to really find a self, you can't find one because you just see everything as being impermanent and you start to discover that there is no self. Another thing that you do is you start to disassociate with the self. One of the things that I recommend for people is as you're working on non-self, and this comes later after you start putting together more of the path, is that you stop referring to things as like my car, my house, my son, my clothes, my job. Instead, as I'm going to the place where I work, or this is the car that I use for transportation, these are the clothes that I'm wearing today because this word my, 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 mine, mine reinforces the self. So when we start to use language that is more appropriate for what's really happening here, then we actually can train the mind better because what's really happening is we've got this physical body and we've got this mind and it's come together for this unique existence. And this combination of this physical body and mind coming together is what was labeled as David when this baby came out of my mom's stomach. And the problem is, is that as time goes on, the human being starts associating this name more and more. But what really is transpiring is we've got this physical body and this mind coming together for this unique existence. And we start taking ownership over stuff and it's mine, 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 mine. And the language that we use, it really determines how the mind thinks and how the mind processes things. And the English language and pretty much every other language on the face of the planet is ill-equipped to really explain what's truly going on here. What's truly going on is we've got this big bag of skin with these bones and fluid and tissue and all these other things inside this big bag of skin. And we've got this consciousness or this mind that's kind of controlling the physical movements of the body. 
And when I was coming home from school as a little kid, my grandmother couldn't say to my mom, hey, did that big bag of skin with fluid and bones come home? Are they doing their homework? You know, they had to say, you know, has David come home from school yet? Is he doing his homework? So the language that we're using kind of reinforces to the mind that there is a self. And the more that we understand impermanence, like you're saying, James, and we start to use language that kind of disassociates that from the mind, then it trains the mind to let go of the self. And you know, you might need to do that for six months or a year to really train the mind to disassociate and see truly that there is no self. But then at a certain point, it just becomes easier to say to people, you know, this is my son, Bailan, right? So it's easier to kind of introduce him as this is my son, Bailan, instead of, you know, this is my offspring, <laughs> you know, or something like that. But for a period of about six months or a year, it kind of helps you to use language to separate the mind from thinking that there's an actual self here. And definitely looking at impermanence and soaking that in will surely help you. Thanks, David. I was also wondering, as we experience pleasant feelings, is it accurate to say that we only experience pleasant feelings because our mind is of a nature to experience painful feelings? that we essentially can't experience one without the other? Exactly. If the mind is going to experience pleasant feelings based on some external condition, then you're inviting in the painful feelings. So as long as the mind stays attached or fixed or looking externally for these pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, and elation, then at some point it's going to also experience painful feelings because... If the mind is basing its condition of happiness, excitement, and elation on something external, that external condition is not permanent. So if you're happy because you have a boyfriend, that boyfriend is not permanent. That boyfriend's going to be gone someday. Either they're going to go travel, they're going to go on holiday, maybe you guys break up, maybe one of you die before the other. All different kind of things can happen. So if you base your internal feelings of happiness on this external condition, then you're inviting in the painful feelings. And this is the number one problem that the Buddha discovered that we're gonna talk about in the Four Noble Truths is how the mind longs externally for pleasant feelings. It wants and craves and expects those pleasant feelings and it chases after them. And it just can't get enough and it can't get enough and it can't get enough. And this is why many of us will at certain points in our life turn to substances and we find it very difficult. But what's happening is the mind is just chasing after those pleasant feelings and it's been chasing after them and it's tried all these other things and it's not working. So we oftentimes will turn to substances like alcohol or drugs in order to somehow sustain that. But then that just makes the problem worse because now we start making bad decisions in our life because the mind is clouded from this substance and now we kind of pull the carpet out from our feet our own feet because we're now making all these bad decisions so chasing after these pleasant feelings is only going to invite painful feelings into the mind at some point in some way so what the buddha is prescribing and what he's suggesting and what he's offering guidance for is that you train the mind to no longer long for these external conditions to create internal feelings, 
But instead, you train the mind to let go and be inwardly peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, not based on any external conditions. And that's what this whole path is about. Thank you for those clarifications, David. Let's go to Basim now for our questions on Zoom. Thanks, James. A question from Judith. She says, could you talk a little bit about the difference between personality and self? Yeah, so personality is not necessarily the self. If somebody sees the personality as being who they are, then they've made their personality part of the self. But if you think about the personality, the personality has been changing our whole life from when we were a child of an infant, toddler, young childhood to teenager, young adult, and so forth. Our personality has constantly been changing and the image of how we look at ourselves has been constantly changing, too. So as you have a certain personality that will always be changing and adjusting as you go through life. And even when you attain enlightenment, you will still have a certain personality. So letting go of your, the self doesn't mean you're going to let go of the personality. You're still going to have certain jokes and certain things that you're into, certain topics, certain way about you, but you will do that without associating those things as being permanent and that that's your self-identity. Where what we do is we tend to, in the unenlightened state, when there's a self there, is we associate this physical body and this mind as being the self. And sometimes we include the personality in there too. But the personality isn't necessarily part of the self unless we make it part of the self. A comment from Sue. She says, I know I get hung up with the parent self issue. I like to control things and have expectations of outcomes. And I can be offended if others don't approve. So I definitely need to work on this. Yes, we're going to explain this more, Sue, when we get to the Four Noble Truths, which is next, because that's what really explains the problem to you and how to resolve it and how to fix it. Uh, the Buddha explains in four simple statements the problem, the cause of the problem, the solution to the problem, and the complete solution to the problem. And then it's a matter of progressing on this journey, on this path, to actually implement the things that he talks about in order to train the mind to eradicate that frustration or irritation or annoyance or whatever it is, those discontent feelings that you experience as a result of things that are happening in life. A question from Sarah. She says, I see the concept of oneself closely connected to the concept of dependent arising. Is this right? And then she continues saying, can you say some words about this? Dependent origination is something that is more of an intermediate teaching that I don't want to go into too much today because we're just getting started with right view. But you're on the right track there, Sarah, that pretty much everything connects back to dependent origination because dependent origination starts with ignorance or unknowing of true reality. And that's the real problem that creates all those other 12 steps that leads to birth. If it wasn't for ignorance, we wouldn't ever get to birth. So yes, you're on the right track, but I'm not interested in going into it in too much detail because 
I would like to stay with the three universal truths and the four noble truths for today. Okay, uh, Malal has a question. Um, so it seems that the teaching of non-self would be most beneficial for children, and especially if they're taught at an earlier age. Um, so my question is, how can you skillfully teach non-self if you yourself as a practitioner are learning non-self? It's very difficult to teach any of these teachings if you haven't yet learned, reflected, and practiced them very deeply. And I always suggest people to never even attempt to teach these until they've really deeply understood them and deeply practiced them. And the Buddha said the same thing. He described that it would be difficult you know, it would be extremely difficult for somebody with craving, anger, and ignorance, for example, to teach someone how to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance because they haven't done it themselves yet. So I always encourage parents to first work on themselves, even though there isn't a self, is to work on their own wisdom, their own mind, and progressing on this path before they start introducing it to children. You can introduce some simple things like impermanence to them, and, you know, you can kind of lightly introduce the Four Noble Truths to them and some of the, you know, right speech and things like this. But when it gets to non-self, that is something that you really have to get in touch with and fully understand yourself before you can actually start teaching others about that. We have a question on Zoom from Sarah. She says, for me, there's a big difference between understanding the concept of non-self from an intellectual or philosophical point of view and really feeling it like not being offended and jealous. How can I support also feeling this? Yes, absolutely. All of these teachings, there's a, a certain amount of intellectual learning. There's a certain amount of reflection and, and seeing that it's true throughout just looking at it in real life. Like the examples I gave you, like you can't point to a self if you notice that your self-image and your self-identity has been changing over time, then you know there's no permanent self. But then it's a matter of moving it into practice. And that's where I said this is something to discuss later in terms of non-self because a practitioner is going to have to put together a whole lot of other things before they're ready to eliminate the self. You can't just jump in at the very beginning of this path and eradicate the self. It's going to take at least six months to a year to put together the Four Noble Truths and a lot of other teachings that need to be learned and practiced before you can ever start focusing on fully, deeply understanding what non-self is and also realizing non-self and practicing non-self. So it's included as part of the three universal truths and it's important to know, but if you're new to this path or even if you just new to learning with me in the last few months or so i would say put non-self to the side for now because there's a whole lot of other things to learn in this program being as though that we're just on chapter four by the time we get to chapter 17 we talk about dissolving the ego there and the ego is comprised of the self as well as conceit or arrogance or pride. And when we get to chapter 17, that's where I start to really talk about eradication of non-self and helping you understand what non-self is more deeply. Because by that time, you've you know been learning and practicing with me for about four or five months by the time we get there. So uh, if it's okay with you guys, 
I would prefer to set non-self to the side for now, just because we're starting off on chapter four and it's important to learn the basics before we really get into something that I consider to be more of an intermediate teaching. Thank you, David. Those are all the questions we have for right now. Okay, so let's move into talking about one more preliminary thing that's needed before we talk about the Four Noble Truths. In order to talk about the Four Noble Truths, you need to understand the definition of what craving, desire, attachment is. This is also talked about in terms of expectations or wants or holding or grasping or clinging. These are all English words that we use to try to understand what the Buddha was talking about because the Buddha wasn't speaking in English when he was teaching. We're moving his teachings into English and now we have a much better understanding of what he was teaching. And we oftentimes need many different English words to explain something that he was referring to with just one word. So let me help you understand what craving, desire, attachment is as it relates to Buddhist teachings, because you already know these words, craving, desire, attachment, but your definition and how you think of them might be different than what we think of when we talk about them in terms of Buddhist teachings. So when we describe craving, desire, attachment, what I'm talking about is this mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. This is how the mind pulls to something. You've experienced this many times in your life and you might not have realized it. Since we were talking about substance, you know, like alcohol and drugs, if you've ever been involved in that, or even sex addictions or gambling or shopping, you know how your mind is pulled towards something. That's that craving, desire, attachment. Or if you've ever had the desire to buy something and you're like, oh, I just want that new video game or I just want that new pair of shoes or I just want that new boyfriend or girlfriend or I just want to go to this new restaurant or this concert, right? The mind is having this longing for something with a strong eagerness. That's what a craving, desire, attachment is in terms of these teachings. This can also be described as expectations or wants. The mind wants something or it expects something. We also talk about this as holding onto something or grasping for something or clinging, kind of holding something tightly. So this is a, a definition that you need to understand in order for us to explain and talk and discuss about the Four Noble Truths. Is there anyone who needs clarification on what a craving, desire, attachment is and how that you've experienced these in the past and making sure that you understand what this is? We have no questions or comments at, the time, at this time, David. Okay, so now let's go into the Four Noble Truths, which everything that I've talked about so far was just building up to helping you get to the point where now we can have this breakthrough and start to establish right view. Here in these Four Noble Truths, the Buddha is going to explain the problem, the cause of the problem, the elimination of the problem, and the complete elimination of the problem. The first noble truth is the problem. Everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. So if you experience anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, 
boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, happiness, excitement, elation, then you know that your mind is currently unenlightened. No big deal. There's lots of unenlightened people in the world. The goal is for you to learn, reflect, and practice these teachings so that you can attain enlightenment, okay? And you can eliminate these discontent feelings. But that's the problem. The problem is the discontentedness. Painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. The second noble truth is discontentedness is caused by our own attachments, our craving desire attachments, because the mind craves for everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. We're going to go through this a few times, and I'm going to give you a few examples to help you understand this. And I may even invite you guys to share your examples. So discontentedness, painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant is caused by craving, desire, attachment. The mind is longing for something with a strong eagerness, expecting or wanting things. It wants it to be permanent. But when the mind experiences impermanence, that's when the painful feelings comes in. So when the mind has this longing, this craving, this desire, this strong eagerness, and it just wants those pair of shoes, it just wants those pair of shoes, and it's driving itself to make money, get to the store, and buy that new pair of shoes. If it gets that pair of shoes, it's happy, it's excited, it's elated, it's got that happiness, that excitement, that elation. The mind is actually discontent at that point, but it's experiencing pleasant feelings. But now, let's just say you go to that store and they don't have the shoes or they've run out of the shoes because the mind is longing with a strong eagerness and wanting those shoes so badly, now it's going to experience painful feelings because it didn't get the object of its affection. It can't experience those pleasant feelings because it didn't acquire those shoes. It wanted those shoes to be permanent. It was grasping for them. It was trying to hold on to them. And then because it didn't get them, now it's going to be sad. It's going to be angered, frustrated, irritated, or what have you. Or even if you do get those shoes and it experiences happiness, excitement, and elation, over time, those shoes are going to get old and they're going to degrade because they're impermanent. And now the mind is upset or angry or otherwise discontent because these shoes are starting to degrade and fade away. It wanted those shoes to be permanent. And now that they're not the brand new, bright, shiny shoes anymore, the mind's going to experience anger or frustration or irritation. Let me give you some other examples. One that I know many of us have had challenges with in the past. If you've had somebody die that's close to you and you've become very sad depressed maybe, or even angered. Some people get angry when somebody dies. Well, as you heard me talk about, we all have to die because we were born. But the reason why the mind's experiencing that anger, that sadness, that frustration is because the mind's craving permanence. It wants this relationship to be permanent. 
It wants mom or dad or grandma or grandpa, whoever has died in your life, your mind was craving permanence. It had this longing with a strong eagerness and it wanted this person to be permanent. And when they died, the mind became sad or frustrated or lonely, right? Or maybe anger, right? And that's what caused it is because the mind's craving, desire, attachment. The mind has this longing and strong eagerness, wanting things to be permanent, and therefore it experienced these painful feelings. Another example is say you bought a brand new car and you took it off the showroom floor, you drove it somewhere, and you came out of the store and there's a scratch on the car. You might come out and get very angry, very frustrated. You might start blaming other people and say that that person scratched my car and he's the one who's making me angry or she's the one who's making me angry because she scratched the car. Well, in reality, you're actually making your own mind angry. You're causing it yourself because you have this longing and strong eagerness. You want this car to be permanent. And when you saw that scratch, i.e. impermanence, the mind didn't understand impermanence. And therefore, because of its longing with a strong eagerness, it caused itself to be angry or frustrated or irritated. And this is where we get into a lot of trouble in our life because you can come out and be hot-headed and angry, get into a fight. I mean, people have been murdered over things like a scratch on a car. And then the person's in jail for a scratch on the car. Why? Because of the craving, desire, attachment. The mind didn't understand impermanence. Because another person can come out of the store, same exact car, same exact scratch, and say, huh, thank goodness I got insurance. Let me go get it fixed. Same car, same scratch. So it's not the scratch, it's not the car, it's not the person who scratched the car that's causing the anger. Because if it's the person who scratched the car, then both people would get angry. But one person can get angry and one person maybe not. They would just go get it fixed, recognizing impermanence, right? This is a more awakened mind, a mind that has more wisdom and is going to function in a way that doesn't cause harm in the world. They're going to acknowledge and see the impermanence and they're going to just take action to fix the problem. They realize that the anger and frustration doesn't actually do anything beneficial. So the anger and the sadness or frustration, that's the problem. The cause of the problem is this mental longing with a strong eagerness, craving for things to be permanent when pretty much everything is impermanent. So now, rather than believing this, and before I move on to the next part of the Third Noble Truth and the Four Noble Truth, I would like you to think about the last time you were angry or the last time you were frustrated or irritated. It might have even been today or yesterday. Think about that situation. And maybe yesterday you might have blamed a person or a situation for causing you to be angry. But now that you understand, hopefully on an intellectual level, that you are actually causing your own discontent mind, I would like you to investigate and reflect in the mind. What is the craving, desire, attachment? 
What is the mental longing with a strong eagerness that you had that caused your frustration, that you caused it yourself? What was the mental longing and strong eagerness? What was the craving, desire, attachment that the mind was longing for, craving some kind of permanence, and it caused itself to be angry or sad or frustrated or irritated? And if you'd like to share that in the comment section, then you can share what was the situation or you can raise your hand electronically and share what was the situation, what was the craving, desire, attachment so that we can see it. Or if you're not able to see it, if you're like, no, 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 David, I came out of the store and my car was scratched and it was that other guy's fault and he made me angry. If you're not seeing it yet, share that with me too so that I can help you see that you're actually causing all your own discontent feelings. This is the part that you really need to break through in order to establish right view. So James, Manal, or Bassam, anybody in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom that needs to ask a question or clarification or has an example of what they would like to share about how they cause their own discontentedness or maybe they need help seeing that they cause their own discontentedness? have an example that can start us off David I think for me and I'm sure most people we're in a world with individuals who may not always share our beliefs and see the world differently and that can cause discontent and I think that there can be several attachments that drive that it may be an attachment for others to simply agree with us it may be an attachment for others to be peaceful and yet their beliefs aren't the type of beliefs that will lead them to peace it may be an attachment for a better world while feeling that their beliefs aren't building toward that i think it can be several different things but i think that's certainly an area where myself and a lot of others probably encounter discontent of our own making in this sense Yeah, so I'll even expand that out a little bit further, James. So whether it's beliefs or political opinions or how to raise children or any kind of discussion that two people might be having, sometimes you or the other person might have a longing with a strong eagerness, a craving, desire, attachment for people to agree with you. Your mind has this longing with a strong eagerness for everyone to agree with your political opinion. You're craving permanence. Or you would like people to agree with you about what school your children go to or how to raise children. Or you want people to agree with you about some decision you've made in your life. And when someone disagrees with you, this is impermanence. The unenlightened mind doesn't understand impermanence. It doesn't like impermanence. So one of the ways to say that the mind craves permanence is to say the mind doesn't like impermanence. The unenlightened mind dreadfully despises impermanence, any kind of change or any difference. So this is why oftentimes two people can end up in a very heated argument where they're both having craving, desire, attachment mental longing with a strong eagerness to get the other person to agree with them. The mind can't just reside peaceful, allowing somebody else to disagree. Okay, yeah, I'm fine with you disagreeing with me. I see your opinion and, you know, thank you. You know, I I disagree 
and I have this opinion or however you might decide to choose to talk, you can actually remain calm in a situation where you understand it's impossible for everyone in this world to agree with you. You will never live in a world where 100% of the people agree with you. Never. It's just not possible. That's the universal truth of impermanence. If everybody agreed with us, then that would be permanence. But that doesn't exist. But the problem is, is that the unenlightened mind wants permanence. It expects permanence. It's longing, it's grasping, it's holding, craving, desiring, attached to this permanence. It wants this agreeable thing to happen. And when that doesn't happen, when it meets the disagreeable, that's when the mind becomes discontent. Or when you meet people who agree with you and share your same opinions, you get happy, you get excited, you get elated, and your mind's discontent because these people who you agree with and who agree with you, you're pleasant and you feel wonderful around them and you want to include them in your life. But as soon as one of them disagree with you on certain topics, you want to push them away and get them out of your life because the mind is not comfortable when there's disagreement and it wants to push this away. So this is a perfect example, James, whether it's beliefs or political opinions or any other topic of conversation where the mind longs for people to agree with you, you might be aware and notice that your mind becomes discontent when somebody disagrees with you. But what you've ultimately got to get to is that you just expect people to disagree with you because of the universal truth of impermanence. You should expect when people disagree with you. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. And you don't need to react with anger and hostility. You can actually respond with politeness and kindness. But that's a whole nother part of the path. So are there any other examples of times where you guys have been frustrated or angry and you're identifying a certain craving? Or maybe you can't identify the craving and you need help from me to help you see where your mind was having this longing and strong eagerness. We could have a couple of examples, David, but let's go to Gloria first, who has her hand raised. Sure. I do have a, I think it's a big example in my life. Um, I, I claim, <laughs> and I, well, that's how I feel, that I have high anxiety. One thing that I notice is I just don't like change. When I see something is changing, it's just, I feel like a big block in anything. Anything that is like a change for me, I get sick. Like it's so much anxiety. So I, that's one that is, I can apply that and understand that things are impermanent and I, that's life. That's, that's, I, I'm, I'm in this world. Yeah, and this is a perfect time of year for us to be talking about this because the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. just went through a time zone change, right, where people set their times ahead, even just one hour, right? This is impermanence. And for a lot of people, for a couple of weeks, as the body and the mind is adjusting to this impermanence, the change in sleep schedule, the change in how dark it is when they go out to work and they come home and all these different changes based on the time, this can really affect people for a number of, of weeks. And it happens in the fall, too, when the clocks go backwards. 
this just simple change can actually shake up the mind because the mind doesn't understand impermanence. It doesn't like change, any kind of change. The mind doesn't like that. And that's part of what this path, a big part of what this path is all about, is training the mind to understand impermanence and be comfortable with it. And like I said, almost be expecting that there is going to be impermanence because things are changing around us every day, every moment. Thank you, David. We have an example from Judith. Judith says, I was suddenly angry at a man in the underground who was grabbing my bag and yelling at me and pushing me at a time that I was in severe pain and vertigo and going to the hospital for a sound test. I intentionally stepped on his foot as I left in order to be safer in the other direction. I didn't know if what I did was right or wrong. Maybe I made myself safer, but I wasn't totally peaceful with equanimity. Yeah, so this is a perfect time to talk about the Buddhist teachings aren't always sharing what necessarily is right or wrong. What we're talking about here with the Four Noble Truths is helping you to understand why your mind is discontent. So in this situation where the man was grabbing you and grabbing your bag and stuff like this, sure, you know, he, he shouldn't have been doing that. That's like not an appropriate thing to be doing that you see a stranger and you just try to grab onto their body and their physical body or their bag because perhaps you might think he's trying to steal something. So uh, setting aside whether he was right or wrong for doing that, focusing on why the mind's frustrated or angry or irritated in that situation because as the mind is walking through the underground, it's expecting, it's craving, it's desiring to be by itself and never to be touched by another person. It's craving that permanence. And when this person touched you, it startled the mind because that's impermanence. The mind was craving to be by itself. And any kind of interaction with another human being, it startled the mind. So again, you know, was he right or wrong for doing what he did? We could probably say, yeah, you know, he shouldn't be reaching out and grabbing strangers. But perhaps, you know, let's just say another situation, say somebody was having a heart attack or a stroke or they were handicapped and they reached out and touched us because they were falling down or something. Rather than the mind being shaken up by that, if we train the mind really deeply, you can get to the point where the mind won't be shaken up by that kind of impermanence that's coming to it. But that's the permanence that the mind's experiencing and it wants in that moment is it wants to not be touched. And that's what it's craving. That's what it's expecting. That's the longing with a strong eagerness. And when it doesn't get that, then it becomes discontent. And that's why you experience the discontent. We can talk about the whole stepping on the foot and all that stuff another time, Judith. So that way we can stay focused on the Four Noble Truths. David has an example that many of us can relate to. David P., that is. Mm -hmm. Wanting to right a perceived wrong of other drivers. Yes. So the mind, when it's driving, right, has certain things that it wants and it expects, right? Because there's the, the laws. There's the way everyone has read the book and gone to school. And there's a certain way that we expect. We have this longing with a strong eagerness for the road to function in a certain way. And it's almost like the mind expects these little robots that are all doing exactly the same thing all the time. But 
the road is full of impermanence. And David lives here in Chiang Mai, actually. So he sees a lot of impermanence on the road here in Chiang Mai and in Thailand. And when we experience that impermanence, somebody cutting us off in traffic again, not about what's right or wrong, but just why is the mind discontent when that person cuts you off? Well, the mind craves permanence. It's in the lane. It sees the lane. It wants that lane to itself. It expects to have that lane to itself. Well, when this impermanence happens and the car moves in in front of us, now the mind's discontent because it's craving that permanence. It's craving for that lane to be yours and the person's what we consider to be too close. And now the mind gets enraged or angry or frustrated or irritated because it's craving permanence, that longing and strong eagerness. Same exact thing. We have an example from IA on YouTube. I was spending some time with my partner and I felt irritated. The mind was trying to blame him. Then I realized it was my own expectations. You didn't share what the situation was exactly, but that's okay. It sounds like you acknowledge that it was your own expectations of what your partner should or shouldn't be doing, right? This is where we have to let go. And if there's expectations, if there's a longing and strong eagerness, then the mind's going to experience discontentedness. Either it's going to have that longing, strong eagerness and get what it wants. So therefore, it's going to be happy, excited or elated. And that's discontent. Or it's going to have a longing, strong eagerness and not get what it wants. And it's going to experience those painful feelings. Or sometimes we don't even know what the mind wants and we get lonely or bored. Right. So this longing and strong eagerness, this craving, desire, attachment, this is the cause of the discontent mind. And I feel like we've had enough examples now that you guys are starting to see that. And you need to see this more and more and more. From this point forward, I suggest that every time the mind is discontent, don't look externally and blame it on the situation or blame it on the person or the people around you, but look inwardly. Every time you have discontentedness, that's like the red light on the dashboard of your car saying there's a problem here. There's something wrong. You need to investigate. Well, what do you need to investigate? You need to discover what is the longing and strong eagerness. Okay. Now let's talk about the solution to this problem, because the third noble truth is describing the solution to the problem. The way to eliminate this problem is to eliminate the cause. The cause of the problem is the craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. That's the cause of the problem. Since that is the cause, then the solution is to eliminate the longing with a strong eagerness. Now, that's where the real practice comes. We have certain techniques in this path that the Buddha shared with us of how to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment. We use breathing mindfulness meditation as a consistent ongoing practice two to three times a day where we're training the mind gradually over multiple sessions in order to train the mind to let go. Because in breathing mindfulness meditation, we focus on the breath. The breath is the present moment. 
And the mind during meditation is going to want to go to the past. It's going to want to go to the future. It's going to have thoughts, ideas, perceptions. It's going to be longing. It's going to go, want to go everywhere and anywhere. It's not going to want to stay in the present moment on the breath. So when the mind starts longing externally during meditation, you cut it off, you let it go, and you bring the mind back to the breath. And then you're there for a little while, and then the mind longs again. You cut it off, you let it go, and you bring it back. You keep doing that over and over and over again for multiple sessions, many months, many years. You train the mind this way. So then what you do is you knock down and knock down and knock down and knock this craving down where the mind is no longer longing externally. It's kind of like trimming a tree, if you've ever trimmed a tree. The problem that we're seeing is we're seeing the leaves, right? We're seeing the anger, the discontentedness, all that sadness and frustration. Well, you've got to cut back the leaves. You've got to cut back the small branches. You've got to cut back the big branches. You've got to get all the way back to the trunk of the tree, all the way down to the stump where you cut this back, this longing with strong eagerness, you cut it back more and more and more and more where the mind is trained to no longer look externally for satisfaction for this pleasure, but instead it goes inward and it it gets trained to cut off looking externally and it's trained to look inward for peacefulness, calmness, serenity, contentedness with joy. And it takes many sessions and many months and years to train in that direction and that's why there's a whole path here but since the problem the cause is this craving desire attachment the solution in the third noble truth is to eliminate this craving desire attachment through practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and we also practice generosity generosity is where we share We share our time, effort, energy, and resources. We're taught this as kids to share, but we don't exactly know why. And as we get older, we sometimes have a tendency to become somewhat selfish because that self becomes more and more prominent as we age. We start holding things a lot more closely to the chest and we stop sharing. We stop sharing our smile with people. We stop sharing our time, our effort, our energy. Even food, you know, if we open up a bag of chips, we oftentimes just eat the chips and we don't offer it to somebody else. So since the problem is the mind's holding on and holding on and holding on and breathing mindfulness meditation, we're training the mind to let go. And then also with generosity, sharing, we're training the mind to let go. We're training it to no longer just fulfill our selfish desires these pleasant feelings, but we train the mind to let go and share with others and acknowledge this interconnectivity that we have with other beings. While this is an independent journey that all of us need to pursue independently with guidance from a teacher, we also at a certain level have to recognize this interconnectivity that we have with other beings around us. And by sharing and practicing generosity, even sharing a smile, then this allows us to start letting go of this craving desire attachment. And there's more about that later as we progress in this program. But the solution to the problem of this discontentedness is to eliminate the craving desire attachment, this mental longing where the mind wants to grasp and hold on to things. It wants the objects of its affection. Then the fourth noble truth, 
is the path to eliminate discontentedness entirely. The complete path is called the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is eight steps that the Buddha teaches as a way of purifying the mind and learning and training the mind to practice certain teachings that brings your wisdom, your moral conduct, and your mental discipline closer and closer to what he taught as enlightenment. And the more that you train your mind in this direction, you will no longer be producing unwholesome decisions. Because when we have craving, desire, attachment, when we have longing with a strong eagerness, when we have certain wants, objects of our affection, we make certain selfish decisions based on our wants. And whenever our decisions are tainted with selfishness, with this longing and a strong eagerness, that's an unwholesome decision because it's tainted or polluted with this unwholesome root of craving, desire, attachment. And whenever we're putting unwholesome things out into the world, unwholesome things are going to be coming back to us. But when we transform this mind to now practice generosity, for example, where we're freely giving and living open-handedly and we're no longer pursuing our selfish desires, our objects of our affection, when we're able to make decisions that are in our best interest, but also with the interest of other people in mind, now we can make wholesome decisions that have wholesome results. And it's the Eightfold Path that the Buddha provides some general guidance about how we can purify things like our intentions, our speech, our actions, our livelihood, applying right effort, having right mindfulness, and having right concentration to train the mind to have better wisdom, better moral conduct, and better mental discipline or control of the mind. And by us training the mind in this way, then we will produce better and better decisions and therefore, we will have better and better results. Everything in the Buddhist teachings is all based on free will. You will always and forever make your own decisions in your life. There's no judgment in these teachings. This te these teachings aren't a religion in terms of my view. These teachings are a pathway to a better way of life, of how to understand these natural laws of existence. And the more that you understand these natural laws, you will become wiser and wiser and you will make your own free will decisions that have better and better results. But when you don't understand these natural laws and we make decisions with ignorance or unknowing of true reality, that's why we struggle. That's why we have misery in this world, because we're making decisions without wisdom. We're making decisions with ignorance or unknowing of true reality. And the more of those decisions that we put out into the world, the more unwholesome decisions we're making, the more unwholesome results that we experience. And it's only when we learn and deeply understand, deeply reflect and deeply practice these teachings that our wisdom becomes more and more acquired and now we make wiser and wiser and wiser choices in our life, which produce better and better results. And this is how you train the mind through this entire eightfold path. I would like to just look at the next slide, James, where you guys can see the entire eightfold path in its entirety. 
This is something that I'm going to talk about next week on Sunday. It's chapter five in the book that we're using, which is developing a life practice, the path that leads to Nibbana. Chapter five starts with the Eightfold Path. That whole chapter is devoted to the Eightfold Path. And the very first step of the Eightfold Path is right view, because you need to have right view in order to learn and practice all the rest of the Buddhist teachings. Because what we just described in those four statements is all unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness. The cause of all discontentedness is because the mind has craving, desire, attachment, this longing with a strong eagerness for things to be permanent when everything's impermanent. We can eliminate discontentedness by eliminating the craving, desire, attachment. That mental longing with a strong eagerness, we can eliminate that in the mind because it's being produced in the mind. So therefore we can eliminate it. And the way to eliminate the entire problem of the discontent mind is the Eightfold Path. So right view is essentially teaching you to take responsibility for your own feelings. The feelings and emotions that you experience, whether it's sadness, anger, frustration, that whole list that I always talk about, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, all of those discontent feelings, even the happiness, excitement, and elation, we are causing all of those ourselves. Our mind is causing those problems. So by us accepting responsibility that we are in fact causing this discontentedness, we then have right view because now we can accept responsibility for these discontent feelings. And because we're the ones that are causing it, we can actually eliminate it. What we tend to do in the unenlightened state is we go around and we blame everybody else. It's everyone else's fault that we're angry. It's the world's fault that the world's not doing things our way because we have a certain image in our mind of how the world is supposed to function. And we tend to go around trying to change everybody else. There's 7.5 billion people in the world. And if we tried to go around and change everybody in the world to do things our way, we'll never accomplish that goal. Never accomplish that goal. So what the Buddha is teaching you is instead of trying to go around and change everybody else to do things your way, instead, just train your mind, just one mind, train your mind to understand the natural laws of existence. Because when you understand these natural laws and you train your mind, now you'll have wisdom and you can make better decisions in the world and you will produce better and better results in this mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But as long as you go around and keep trying to change everybody else, you're not actually solving the problem. You're actually making the problem worse because you're having longing and a strong eagerness for other people to do things your way. You're craving permanence. So you're actually making yourself more frustrated by trying to train everyone to do things your way. But by you deciding to focus inwardly where the real problem is, which is your mind. Now, a big burden just got lifted off your shoulders because you don't have to train 7.5 billion people. And there's more people being born all the time. So you're going to have to have a massive training program to get everybody in the world to do things your way. 
right? So you don't have that burden of having to train the whole world. You only have to train one mind. And that's going to be challenging enough because you can only really truly control one mind in this world. You can't control everyone else. You can only control your mind. So if you're willing to accept responsibility and see very clearly that you are causing all your discontent feelings, then the question is, well, I just need to train one mind then. Let me just train my mind, okay? That's right view. If you accept responsibility for your emotions and you see that your feelings are being caused by your own pollution of the mind, your own lack of understanding, your mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. Well, if you acknowledge that, then the beauty is that now all you have to do is train that one mind on this path to enlightenment. And as you learn and progress each one of these steps, then you're going to be able to get more and more peacefulness of mind. The way that this path works is the path itself is the central core teaching of the Buddha. This is his core teaching and everything else plugs into it. The Four Noble Truths plugs into right view and loving kindness plugs into this and the five precepts plug into this and other things plug into this eightfold path. When you are learning and practicing this path, you don't learn just one step and master it before you move into the next one. You're actually kind of trying to dial in all of these at the same time. If you remember kind of like the old time sound equipment, like an equalizer that has all these individual dials on it, the Buddha's Eightfold Path is like eight individual dials. And you're trying to bring all of these dials to the middle where you deeply understand his teachings intellectually and then you also reflect on them and you practice them and you bring your practice into more and more clarity. It's like tuning the sound of these equalizers and you're bringing them into more and more optimized sound. The Buddha talked about this in terms of a stringed instrument. If you've ever played a guitar or any kind of stringed instrument, if it's too loose and you pluck the string, it doesn't sound right. The music doesn't sound correct. But if you tune the string too tight and you pluck the string, it doesn't sound right. It doesn't play beautiful music. It's only when you tune the string perfectly in the middle and you strum it that it sounds beautiful and it plays the way that the instrument was intended to be played. Well, your mind is exactly the same way. Your mind is out of tune. That's why it's experiencing discontentedness. It's out of tune. And now what this path to enlightenment is doing is you're going to learn how to refine the mind through this wisdom of the Buddha and tune it so it's perfectly in the middle and it's optimized. And now it will play beautiful music. It will make better and better decisions through your own free will that you will then be able to exercise this wisdom and you'll experience better results in the world. Because like I said, it's very challenging to live in a world, very much a struggle to live in a world that you don't understand. Just like it would be very difficult to play beautiful music with an instrument that's out of tune. Well, the unenlightened mind is out of tune and that's why it's been such a struggle in various parts of your life. 
and it's the Buddhist teachings that are going to bring this mind into tune for you. But the Buddha can't do that work. You have to do the work, right? There's nobody here that you're going to pray to and ask for some beneficial result. There's nobody here that you're going to get punished or rewarded for certain things that you do. There's nobody that's going to meditate for you. There's nobody that's going to come to these classes for you. There's nobody that's going to read this book and ask questions for you. You have to do the work and you have to apply the effort. And what I do is I make myself available through all of these different ways of book, audiobook, videos, podcasts, online classes, personal guidance, all these different ways that I put resources out there that you guys can access and use completely openly and freely. There's never a time that I ever ask anybody to give me anything because I have no expectation of you. I'm here to help you and guide you and you choose what things you would like to engage with, whether it's the classes or the books or the personal guidance or the podcast or what have you. As you decide to engage with these things, you're going to learn more and more of these natural laws of existence. Your mind is going to gain more wisdom and awaken to making better and better choices, just like you did with gravity. And now you can roam about the world and not have any fear that you're going to fall down. You can live in peace and you can travel everywhere. Well, the same thing is once you learn these universal truths, these four noble truths, these natural laws of existence, this eightfold path, you implement these teachings more and more in your life, developing your life practice, the mind will become more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you're no longer struggling in this life with an instrument that's out of tune. You're actually going to be in life with this optimized mind that fully understands these natural laws. So with that, that's everything that I was planning to share today. I would just turn the rest of the class time over to you guys with whatever questions you guys have about the three universal truths or the four noble truths or how we're going to progress in this program together. Okay, David, we have a question from Holly to start us off. I want to get my mind to realize that I'm causing my discontentedness before I react with anger or irritation. It's easy to blame my kids or my husband for doing things that I don't like. Logically, I understand, but emotionally, I do not have control. Mostly, it is a desire for them to be nice and use kind words. As a parent, I want my kids to use kind words with each other and other people. I want my husband to be an example to them by using kind words, but he is not. How can I see my discontentedness as not being caused by the way they are acting? I can't imagine myself ever being able to sit in a room and listen to my kids bicker and argue with each other and not get irritated. Yeah, the key here, Holly, is the language. Once again, the language that you're using, and this is how the mind works, is, you know, I want my husband to do this. I want my kids to do this. I want my kids to be this way. That's the craving, desire, attachment, that mental longing and strong eagerness that the mind's having. What you've got to transform that to is, I'm interested in my kids getting along together. And I would like to make some wise decisions to help them come together and learn how to do that. But when or how or if they're going to do that is totally their choice. You can, as a parent, guide them. 
you can help them, you can provide them wisdom, but ultimately it's their own free will choice that's going to decide whether to be that way or not. So you've got to transform this want of all the things that you want to be an interest, that I have an interest in doing this. I would like to work in this direction. But if you have a certain timeline of when you want all this to happen, once again, that's craving, desire, attachment. You have to see the gradual training that your mind has to go through to improve the condition of your mind, your children and your husband, if they choose to improve their way of being with each other, they're going to progress gradually. When I first started practicing these teachings closely, my son talked bad to his mom sometimes. And I observed this and I also didn't like it. And I was interested in improving this conduct that he would talk to his mom in a better way. But I knew it was a gradual process. And over the course of many months, I had to help him and show him and encourage him and do things for him that encouraged him to improve his conduct. So what I tended to do is I tended to reward him with praise or that a boy or maybe even a piece of chocolate or going to the arcade when I noticed that he would do things well. But I had to give him the wisdom of how to do things well. So I taught him those five factors of well-spoken speech. And I taught him about impermanence. And I taught him about the natural law of karma, about how, you know, it's really not good for you to talk to your mom <laughs> bad because you talk to your mom bad. What do you think is going to come back to you? right? That's an unwholesome decision to talk to your mom bad and bad things are going to come back to you because who's going to cook for you? Who's going to wash your clothes? Who's going to take you to school if you don't treat your mom well? So over a course of many discussions, right? We oftentimes want to have just one discussion with our kids and walk away and then they just do what we say. But that's not how it works. We have to have many, many, many patient discussions. So the more that you practice right speech and the more that you develop your practice, the more patient you will become, the more wise you will become. Transform these wants to interest. Sit down with your children in individually, one at a time. Take them out places one at a time sometimes or together and talk with them. A lot of the talks that my son and I had where as we were driving, there was like he was six years old when we started. It was just like a 30 second thing here or there. And then we were like off to the next thing. Because as a six year old, I didn't sit down and have like a full out Four Noble Truths talk with him. It had to be these little 30 second sound bites here and there where if he did something well or he talked well to his mom, I encouraged that and mentioned how he did well with that. Or if I noticed something that he didn't do so well, I would say, you know, I think you can do that better. Can you try that again? I would like to see you talk to your mom again and, and try to find some better words to talk to her about what you just asked her about. And then with patience, he slowly, slowly, slowly improved the way that he was interacting. But it, it took a while. So you've got a lot of work to do to learn and practice, as you know. Uh, you've got to transform those wants into interest. If you feel like you can spend time with your children and kind of share some of the wisdom with them, you don't have to tell them it's the Buddhist teachings. Just tell them like, hey, I think you would be much better off in your life with your brother, with your dad, with your friends, with your future family. If you talked in this way, you're going to find that your boss 
your teachers, people in your life are going to respond to you better. You're going to have a much better life. Oftentimes with my son, I would even tell him horrible things that I did in the past and how it turned out really horrible for me and show him like, son, like if you do things this way, you're going to have a hard life like dad had. And I would like to see you have a much better life than that. So you can sit down and talk with your family, but it's going to take a lot of patience and a lot of time for you to to do that. And if you're dedicated to it, you know, you might see some progress, but ultimately you have to get to the point where even though you sit down and talk with them and help them, you do that without craving desire attachment. Because if your mind wants them to be a certain way, it's going to come across in your discussion with them. You're going to be more emphatic. You're going to be more demanding. You're going to be more insistent and you're going to be telling them what to do rather than guiding them or helping them along the path. So you've got to realize that the real solution is to eliminate your craving, desire, attachment and work on your own mind first. And then as you do that better and better, then you can perhaps help some of the people around you. But ultimately, it's their choice of whether or not they choose to improve or not. Is it accurate, David, to say that as we transform our own behaviors, that the behaviors of others around us will transform purely based on the way that we're interacting? Oftentimes it does, especially for people like children and husbands. You know, Holly has a family that I know about and we've talked And all of us that are in families, whether it's a life partner or children, you know, however your children are today or however your husband is or however my wife is or my son is or all of our relationships, they are the way they are for a certain reason based on the decisions that we've made in our life and based on decisions that they've made in their life. But once we start changing and we change our wisdom, we change our moral conduct and we change our mental discipline the people around us tend to slowly start to change as well. Now, if the entire family was on the path, I mean, that would be ideal because everybody could be supporting, encouraging, and motivating each other to improve their practice. And that was one of the benefits I had here is I have a Thai wife who had been on this path for a long time and our son living in Thailand, all of us together around all these practitioners. That was one of the benefits that I had to help me But that doesn't mean that you can't have a family in America or the UK or Spain or France or Italy that decide as a unit, we're going to learn and practice these. That would be ideal. But even if you don't have that and you're just like Holly, where she's like, okay, well, I'm going to do this and my family maybe isn't interested in engaging in these teachings. Well, that's fine, too, because the more that your mind becomes more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, your family is going to observe that. And while right now, Holly, you can't fathom sitting in a room with your children talking bad to each other and you not being angry, that can come. It's just going to take time. You can't fathom it right now just because of where you are in your practice. And out of everybody and everything in your life, out of all your craving, desires, attachments, I'm almost positive that your husband and your boys are your strongest attachments. Those are the ones that you have the deepest. All of us are that way. If you have parents or grandparents or life partners or children, 
that's the strongest, deepest held craving, desire attachments that we typically have in our life. And it's hard for us to imagine being any other way than we are right now currently. And this is where the more you practice, the more you train the mind, you will see the changes in your mind and you may observe changes in the people around you because if you're changing, they almost can't help but change. Or they're just going to be discontent all the time and Holly's going to be walking around with a smile on her face and be so peaceful. And uh, she's just going to be like, hey, guys, uh, be well. See ya. <laughs> and she'll go take a walk with her dog and they'll just argue in the house. <laughs> but, yeah, people tend to change around us as we make changes. Do you think, David, that much of our discontent comes from simply not being rooted in the present and being resistant to what it is? And is that why breathing mindfulness meditation is such an important part of our practice? The cause of discontentedness is always craving, desire, attachment, that mental longing with a strong eagerness. That's always the cause, right? The mind being in the present moment or developing that singleness of mind, what's happening there is when the mind longs for the past, it's got that craving, desire, attachment. Maybe there's something really pleasant that happened in your past and your mind is longing for that. And you're like, man, I just wish I had that same life from five years ago, that same boyfriend, that same girlfriend, that same income, that same job. If I just got that back, my life would be perfect. Well, that's not true because when your life was five years ago, it wasn't perfect. So having that job back isn't going to be perfect. But in that situation where the mind's not in the present moment, James, it's actually craving desire attachment, craving for the past in those pleasant feelings that it thinks that that's what's going to make it peaceful and content, but it's not, that's not what it is. Or the mind longs for the future. It just wishes you have more money or a better job or a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, a bigger house. It just craves and craves and craves. It wants the objects of its affections. It's not in the present moment. So yes, the present moment is important, but it's still that craving in the mind moving and bouncing around that it's still got that longing with a strong eagerness that's causing the discontentedness. Thank you, David, for clarifying that. We have a comment from Deborah on Facebook. She says, both of my parents passed away recently. I realized that it was attachment that is causing my discontent and sadness. I've learned this by studying with you. I'm still trying to deal with this but it has helped me greatly. Good. I'm glad it's helping you. And something to understand that's really key to this path is some people will tell you that you have to eliminate relationships in order to eliminate your attachment, right? They think that you have to not have a partner, not have children, not have friends in your life. I've even seen some people that say that love is an attachment, right? There's a lot of things that I'm going to clarify for you guys on this journey with the group learning program that each chapter by chapter, I'm going to help you see how you can have boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands and wives and children and relationships. And you can actually have even deeper and better relationships when you eliminate this craving, desire, attachment. Because when we have this longing with a strong eagerness for things to be a certain way, we tend to want to control. We tend to want to control our husband or wife or we control our kids or control our siblings or our, our friends. 
And this actually causes unwholesome results for us. And that's why through eradicating craving, desire, attachment, and understanding how to have relationships without craving, desire, attachment, you will actually have much more rewarding and long-lasting relationships because there won't be that longing with a strong eagerness for things to be a certain way that people can make free will decisions around you and maybe you don't agree with your children's decisions or your partner's decisions but you accept them that they're their free will decisions and you just live with it and you know that everything's not about you and make decisions your way so as we clean up our practice and we clean up our mind we develop this life practice eliminate craving desire attachment we're actually going to have much more fulfilling relationships and you can see a lot of improvement in your life because your personal and professional relationships don't crash because of craving desire attachment this is the reason why we have so much trouble with boyfriends and girlfriends as we age we get very very attached and we basically smother and we crush the relationship because we're holding it so tightly right that craving desire attachment expectations wants, holding grasping we crush the relationship and we destroy it through our own decision making and when we train the mind to not do that and we just hold the relationship in our hand and we support it and we encourage it, now we can have a really lasting and fulfilling relationship that goes long-term. And it just takes more wisdom for you to learn how to do that. And it takes for you to train the mind to learn how to do that. And as you do, life just becomes so much more rewarding. We have a question on YouTube from Alex. I'm recovering from depression and struggling to find the way to accept that adopting all of these Buddhist teachings on a deep level will take years. How can I view this as not a chore? So training the mind on this path to enlightenment, it's not easy, but it's also not difficult either. We make things difficult in our life. If you understand that this is a gradual path and this is a life practice, that it's something that you'll be doing for your whole life, you're essentially upgrading the operating system of the mind. The unenlightened mind functions on a really old operating system and it needs to be upgraded. And if you realize that that upgrade is going to take a while, you've got to go th through version one, two, three, four, five. You got to go through all these versions to upgrade the mind to this enlightened mind 9.0. And when you upgrade the mind to this new operating system and you get comfortable with it, then it's actually quite easy and it actually functions a lot better, right? Just like when Facebook upgrades or any of these systems upgrade, it's usually a little bit cumbersome for a while. It takes a little bit of effort to figure it out. But once you figure it out, it's actually quite easy and it's effortless and wow, it actually works better than the old version. So. It's not easy to progress on this path to enlightenment or else everyone in the world would already be enlightened. But it's also not difficult either. People make it difficult because they don't engage with a teacher. They don't spend time learning from somebody who truly understands the path and they don't have resources that they need in order to uh, learn and progress on this path. So that's why I make all these resources available freely and openly so that there's no burden, there's no wall in the way between you and these resources. So since you're watching on YouTube, you can download this book, Developing a Life Practice. There's a link right there that you can get it for free. 
and all the other resources that I share are available. And you can get private personal guidance. You can come to these classes. But yes, you're going to have to have determination. You're going to have to have diligence. You're going to have to apply effort. But you can do that a little bit at a time, right? You don't have to sit for eight hours a day. You know, you can spend just a little bit of time each day gradually building up your practice more and more. And that's how the mind becomes wiser and wiser. You did the same thing when you learned how to read and write, right? You didn't learn your ABCs and reading and writing in one day. You went through kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. And as you aged, you became more and more proficient at reading and writing. And it took you many, many years to get to where you are right now, right? So these natural laws of existence that we don't learn as we're growing up, it's going to take you some time to graduate through these various stages of development. And that's why we talk about the four jhanas and the four stages of enlightenment, that you progress through these stages, just like you've progressed through other things in your life as well. And just like you had teachers to learn how to read and write, you need a teacher to learn these natural laws of existence. And as you do, you'll get guidance and your mind will gradually improve. And then you see that improvement and it helps to motivate you and encourage you along this path. Because most of the people who I've ever talked to that are learning and practicing with me, typically in the first couple of days or first couple of weeks, when they learn and practice these teachings, they see results right away. They see the results. You know, I've had retreats where in one or two or three days, people are coming in and noticing the condition of their mind improving. But yeah, it comes with their own determination and their own effort. And if you apply effort, you will see results and that will gradually help you and motivate you to learn and practice more. Thanks, David. That's all the questions we have for today. All right. Well, I would just like to thank all of you guys, whether this is the first time that you've ever joined us or whether you've been learning with me for many months or over the last year since I've been bringing these teachings more and more online through these classes. Just know that there's support for you here. There's motivation. There's guidance. There's resources to help you that you're not out there alone. I know with COVID and everybody being in quarantine and on in their houses and wherever they are, it can feel somewhat isolated and, and can be alone, which can actually kind of help to kind of cut down some of the interaction that you're having in the world. But just know that you're not alone because on Sunday, Wednesday, and Saturday, I broadcast like this, whether it's in Zoom or Facebook or YouTube, every Sunday, Wednesday, and Saturday at 9 p.m. Thai time, I'm going to be sharing teachings based on a chapter in this book. Right now it's chapter four, but next week on Sunday, it's going to be chapter five, The Eightfold Path, which I'll lay out the entire path to enlightenment for you. And then subsequent chapters after that, each Sunday, I'll be sharing teachings to help you progress. And as you learn, you can implement them each week and improve your life practice and see the results for yourself. On Wednesdays, we do meditation. We do breathing mindfulness meditation. We do loving kindness meditation. And we do Buddhist chanting. This Wednesday coming up is where we're going to be starting our Buddhist chanting. We've already gone through 
a four-part series of breathing mindfulness meditation, a four-part series of loving kindness meditation on Wednesdays. Now we're going to be doing Buddhist chanting, but all of this goes back to meditation. And the book that I share with you guys, it has videos, podcasts, audiobook links at the end of each chapter. So if you're just starting with us now for the first time, you can actually start with the preface of the book and go through chapter one, two, and three and read each chapter. And at the end of each chapter, there's links for a video or podcast where you can see what I've been teaching and you can develop your practice. Don't feel like you're behind if you're just joining us now for the first time. You can just join and just keep coming on Sundays and Wednesdays and learn with us. And what you should be doing is learning from the book, learning with the videos, learning with the online classes, but also meditating. You need to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation each day. And if you don't know how to do breathing mindfulness meditation yet, it's okay because I've got videos, I've got podcasts, I've got personal guidance that you can see on the YouTube channel. In the podcast, you can see the breathing mindfulness meditation classes. You can get the link to schedule an appointment with me to meet privately. And I do all of this openly and freely with all the students. So you can start developing this meditation practice where each day you're meditating and then you're coming to classes on Sunday and perhaps Wednesday. And of course, because of impermanence, you're not going to be able to come to every single class, right? There's going to be times where you've got to do other things. So that's why the YouTube channel has it recorded. Our Facebook group has it recorded and our podcast has it recorded. So if you can come to the live class, it's great because you can ask questions and you can interact. You can get to know people. But if you miss a class here or there, you can just watch it on the replay because of impermanence. You're not going to be able to come every time. But you've got to develop this life practice where you're meditating each day and you're building that up more and more and you're learning these teachings gradually over time, gaining more and more wisdom and implementing it in your life so that you can see the results of these teachings. And as you do, I'll be here to help you, to support you, to guide you. You just have to choose to reach out. You have to choose to engage with these resources and all the support and help and encouragement is here for you. So thank you for joining for today's class. On Wednesday, we will pick up at nine o'clock Thai time. You're welcome to join there. Or next Sunday, we're gonna be doing chapter five with the Eightfold Path. So if you get the book between now and then, you can kind of read the chapter ahead of time if you like. Or if you haven't read this chapter four, you can actually read chapter four as well. And you can ask questions either in class, you can ask questions in the Facebook group, you can send me a private message, or you can schedule a private appointment to meet with me to discuss anything that you'd like to talk privately as well. So all of these options are available for you. Just choose to step forward and learn and practice these teachings. So until I see you next time, have a really wonderful rest of your day, and we'll see you next time. Sawadee khap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. 
There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.